Thinking in Dark Times is a new podcast series by Ukraine World. In the first episode, I speak to world-famous historian Timothy Snyder about Ukraine, Eastern Europe, dissidents, climate change, freedom and the plurality of values. Thinking in Dark Times will try to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our common reflection about the world's present, past and future. We try to see light through and despite the current darkness. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of ukraineworld.org. Ukraine World is one of the most popular websites in English about Ukraine run by Ukrainians. It is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote the majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders on the front line and to people affected by this war. patreon.com slash ukraineworld. So, let's start. I spoke to Timothy Snyder in Kyiv, the Ukrainian capital, which he visited on the occasion of the Yalta European Strategy Forum in early September 2022. We talked in a hotel lobby, therefore I apologize for a little background noise. Timothy Snyder, thanks so much for joining this podcast. I'm very glad to be with you and I'm very glad to be with you in Kyiv. When you're thinking about this war, about Russian invasion of Ukraine, how do you des- describe it? It's, first of all, a result of very bad ideas. Like It's proof that ideas matter in the world. It matters that Putin believes that there is no Ukraine and no Ukrainian people, no Ukrainian state. And that bad idea is a result of other bad ideas like, for example, that the world is flawed and it can be healed by violence carried out by a particular nation, Russia. There's a whole chain of very bad ideas. So when I think of the sources of the war, I'm reminded personally that ideas matter a lot in the world and that our conversations about ideas therefore matter. When I think about the war itself, I think about it as a kind of war of destruction or extermination where the the goal has been from the beginning and they've said it quite openly to make sure that there is no such thing as Ukraine whether that means um, intimidating Ukrainian women by raping them whether that means executing local elites whether that means filtration and, and deportation the the idea and the practice has been to remove the notion of Ukraine from the world. And Do you think that uh, that Russia, well, by denying the identity of Ukrainians, they're also showing they have deep troubles with their own identity? They are saying to themselves that Russia itself is not possible without Ukraine. I think something very similar. I think it, it takes a certain amount of courage to... It takes a certain amount of courage to build an identity, whether it's a personal identity or a national identity. And it's it's easier, but also more cowardly to take your identity, whether as a person or as a nation from someone else. So I can be me by not being you, but, in, but if that's my choice, then I'm probably going to belittle you or humiliate you or try to do that. And as a nation, 
I can build up my story by saying that I'm not you, or in the Russian case, that you are some version of me, but I get to tell you what that version is. And if you don't agree, then I will apply force. Um, there's a German saying to the effect that if you, if you don't want to be my brother, I'll break your skull, which rhymes in German. And um, it's something like that, that I, I know who I am because I'm your brother, but if you say you're not my brother, that gives me something to do, which is to force you to be my brother. But at the end of the day, I agree. Russia, this Russia in particular, lacks a story of itself. And although at the beginning of this war and for the last 10 years, people have spent a lot of time talking about what is Ukraine, I think what is Ukraine is a question which is pretty easy to answer. The question what is Russia is really the hard one. So what is Ukraine for you now? If I tell you my vision, uh, I think that Ukrainians are now defining themselves by reference to a, some universal value. And it's a very interesting thing that you kind of a define your identity, which should be different from others, but mm -hmm. you define it through the, the, the very universal things. And there are two words, I think you will agree with me, that define maybe three words. I would say it is freedom, dignity, and a certain opposition to tyranny. So uh, kind of uh, anti-tyrannical values. Would you agree with that? I'm not sure there's really a tension between the particular and the universal here because all, of, all communities are particular, but if we can articulate a value, it's potentially universal. When I think of Ukraine today, I mean, I think some of the values that we're seeing have deep historical roots. I think the, the notion of freedom as being able to choose your own leader goes back at least to Cossack times. And the, the idea of collective resistance, I think, is also quite ancient, really, in Ukraine. But it's also certainly true that in the last 30 years, um, a kind of rough and tumble notion of freedom for the individual as a defended from time to time by the collective has become a kind of Ukrainian norm. And I mean 2004, I mean 2014, as well as 2022. And that's, that's now a Ukrainian reality, which is very different from, say, a Russian or a, or a Belarusian reality. But I take your point that this is very much a war of values. And I, I see it as a kind of war of values against a war, against, of values against nihilism where the, the starting Russian principle is that there aren't really any values. There are only strong preferences that are enforced by violence. Whereas Ukrainians in a very kind of classical way, uh, not just politicians, but all the way down through civil society are making value claims all the time. And, what's, and of course, making value claims while you're taking risks for them is much more convincing and, and interesting than at other times. One of the also questions of this Ukrainian struggle is, is the concept of identity. And I know that in the West, this concept is sometimes seen with suspicion. And I understand why. Because there are clashes around this concept of identity politics, which are 
this concept is not not very nice sometimes, as as if you stress your identity against the identity of others. But on the other hand, uh, my point is that the liberal tradition in the past uh, several decades was a kind of a erasing this question of identity also too much, way too long, as if this universalism was meant to erase all the possible identities. And I think it is also wrong because it is kind of a going against one of the very liberal value, which is the la- value of uh, fraternity, mm-hmm. which comes from the f- French Revolution and, of course, early, earlier times. So do you think that this struggle for identity, meaning for yourself as a community, as a nation, can be uh, coi- uh, can be reconciled with with the liberal values of uh, universal values? I think it's incoherent to imagine individuality without relationships of various kinds. We, we can't build up an individuality without relationships of various kinds. That's just a basic fact of life. If I leave you as a baby abandoned by you know, parents and everyone else, you're not going to develop an identity. Your identity has to do with the stages of your life and encounters with other people and other, and other groups. I helped um, publish not long ago the English version of Miroslav um, uh, Miranovich's, Maranovich's memoirs in which he talks about a normal Ukrainian life that when he was a, you know, a dissident in the 1970s the only thing he really had in mind was a normal Ukrainian life like not some kind of incredibly abstract value on the contrary it was just that for him to be an individual he had to also be a Ukrainian and so his individuality had something to do with his Ukrainianness, And I think that it's really as simple as, as that. I mean, he, you can define his right to speak Ukrainian or to sing Ukrainian songs or whatever it might be uh, as an individual right, as people did in the 1970s. But it's incoherent without knowing something about his life and his contact with other people and his parents um, and the sources of the language in general and so on and so forth. Where I would... I mean, where I would try to resolve the tension or the apparent tension is by moving away from the word identity, which I don't like for a different reason. I don't like identity because it, it seems to suggest that we simply are something as opposed to becoming something. And uh, so the, the, if we take identity as fixed, then I think it's not just that that's dangerous, but it's also incorrect. You know, everyone is a Ukrainian because they become a Ukrainian. No one is a Ukrainian at the age of six months. At some point, you become a Ukrainian. And going back to your question about the war, I think people become people become what they are because of what they do with other people. And so, in in the in the war, people are taking risks together. There, people are taking stands together. They're taking making value commitments together and in that sense I think you know, a, a Ukrainian identity is is formed or altered as people become Ukrainian by way of what they do together so what you say about identity as becoming is very interesting right now because what strikes me right now in the Ukrainian society is that basically you can not understand what to expect from it mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes I, I tell my Ukrainian friends that Look, Ukrainians are showing the capacity of the impossible. 
the possibility to do to do the impossible. Mm-hmm. So we know this famous slogan. I don't know. It's coming from one of the brands. Impossible is nothing. So it's it's a kind of about Ukrainian Ukrainians right now. Well, I'm talking to people who uh, lived through the enormous enormous tragedies of of this war they live were living under occupation were evacuating their friends and colleagues and i'm asking them so what is what is your experience and they're saying okay we we live through something and something so much terrible mm-hmm. that we are not afraid of anything mm-hmm. and i think this is this is something very interesting coming back to to this what you're saying identity is becoming is that Ukrainians of course they're looking in the past but they're really believing in the future there is so much discussion about the future in Ukraine yeah. which is probably not present in many other countries in one of your remarks about Russia i think you said i think it was on Kyiv security forum last year you said that Russia is focused on the past do you think that and and ukrainian in this respect it's much more focused on the future do you think it's also one of the differences so what what you're saying really resonates with you know the the ex- the conversations and experiences i've had you know in my own limited way the last the last few months with ukrainians in i was in vienna um for a while and slava vokarchuk came to give a concert to raise money for Ukraine and of course the Ukrainians themselves bought all the tickets <laughs> so it was only it was really only Ukrainians raising money for Ukraine and Slava was singing this you know the song of Sebuda Dobra and I'm and, par- and part of me is thinking well how can you like how can you say that right how can how can you say that that everything's going to be okay in the middle of this war how do you know but it's not that you know that everything's going to be okay it's that you're locating a conversation in the future and by taking a certain kind of action you're making that future more plausible and therefore more likely and the other day i was i was going as you know i was going around chernihiv oblast and talking to people some people who's who had lost family members or whose houses had been destroyed and it was as you say that they were capable of they 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 told their stories in a very calm human way but they also what, what they wanted to talk about was the rebuilding or how the neighbors had helped with the rebuilding and what they still needed to re to rebuild right that there was there was this idea of the future and I think that's something which is very important which Ukraine can help us with and which we can help Ukraine with that Ukraine can help us with with the future because the fu- there's a de- future deficit <laughs> everywhere in the west but we can also help Ukraine practically with the future because in in the practical Ukrainian future there's going to be a victory but that victory has to be intimately organically connected with reconstruction that i think the very idea of victory has to be intertwined with the idea of reconstruction that victory isn't just a, the absence of something it's not just the absence of russians that it's the presence of something the presence of of um better trams the presence of you know 
more solar energy, the presence of better organized towns, whatever it is, but it's that victory is a presence. And uh, I think Ukrainians can help us with the idea, but I think we also have to be thinking, the United States, the European Union, businesses have to be thinking about reconstruction as, as, as part of victory. And yeah, this is a difference. I mean, the, 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 it's a ve- I mean, there are profound, profound differences between the way Ukrainian society and Russian society now work. But one of them is that the person who leads Russia for the moment, Mr. Putin, is trying to trap everyone, not in the past as it was, but in a, in a linear, tyrannical, absolutely deterministic, arbitrary legend of the past. Whereas what, 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 the, what I, you know, one thing which is appealing about Ukrainians is that they look at the past and they tend to have this version and that version and the other version, and that get, makes it easier to think about the future. Because if you don't have, you, you can't think about the future without the past, but you can't be creative about the future unless you have a bunch of different references in the past. A book that I edited a few years ago was called Ukraine in Histories and Stories. And uh, it's it's precisely our idea to put the word history in, in plural, right? To, yeah. have, to have the plurality of the past. One thing that interests me right now in Ukrainian culture, which is unfortunately not very well known in the world, is the capacity to bridge the uh, contradiction between tradition and modernity. Mm. So I'm always saying that Ukrainian modernists of the late 19th, early 20th century, and even Ukrainian avant-garde, uh, avant-garde art of the 20s, was playing with the past in a very skillful way. So mm. it was reinventing the past. Now we see a big tension all over all over the world between the the modernity and tradition between conservatives and progressives mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> this contradiction seems to be very polarizing so russia is saying look we are against european modernity we are for deep tradition whatever do you think that maybe ukrainian experience maybe some other experience can help us really go into the 21st century with the new idea how to reconcile the deep tradition and the modernity. And one thing which is very obvious to me is that uh, one value which can be reconciling is the value of of the environment. Because what is the deep human, I mean, traditionalist societies, we can criticize them a lot for many nasty things, but one of the ideas was that a human being is living in, co- in harmony with nature, right, with the environment. And don't we think that we should think about the modernity, which is not opposing itself to nature, as the European and American modernity was doing over the past uh, centuries, but which is reconciling ourselves with nature. Maybe this is the path for the future. Well, Lodi, I feel like you're doing both sides of the podcast now because you asked the question, then you gave a very beautiful answer to it. So I... I so. Let me start in an abstract way. Um, I think it's, I think it's, it's obvious that you really can't do modernity without tradition, or you can't, you can't do the future without the past. If you just try to concentrate on the future and eliminate all the references to the past, you might get something which is sort of fun, like Italian futurism or Russian futurism or Polish futurism but you're not really going to get anything on which you can build an actual future, right? You're, you're, you're going to get a kind of, you're going to get a sort of entertainment, but you're not going to, you can't build the future on that. 
you can only build the future on the actually available possibilities which emerge from the past, and you can't know what those actually available possibilities are unless you are in some way comfortable with the past, be it, you know, it, which can, can arrive in many ways through tradition, through history, but you have to have some comfort and some ability to, some, some comfort, some way, some way of being in the past to, to then have a plausible future. You can talk about the future, and I agree this is a crisis in that my country is the specialist in this, I think, and the, and the world leader in thinking up futures and filling the conversation space with them, even though they're entirely implausible. Like a future in which we all live forever is entirely implausible. A future in which we all go to Mars is entirely implausible. Uh, and yet these, are, these futures take up a lot of space. And, and in taking up space, they crowd out other things which are, which are more plausible. Like, for example, that we would find a way to live on Earth, as you say. I mean, and uh, living, you know, living on Earth is a matter of bracketing the past 200 years or so, the period of the Industrial Revolution, essentially, and saying in that period, we, we did this unusual thing, we dug up the energy of the past. So now I'm going to try to say something which is both hyper-traditional and hyper-modern, that is to say, it's, it's, very, it's, it's meant to be reverential towards the past of the planet, but also it relies upon scientific knowledge, which is very, not, very let's say, modern. What we've done in the last 200 years is we've taken the energy which was accumulated by all of life on Earth um, for hundreds of millions of years, and we've consumed it. So the thing that we call fossil fuels only exists because of former life. We're taking energy from former life. We're taking energy which only is there in the earth because there was life before us. And we're, we've done something incredibly radical with that, which is that we've dug it up and we've consumed it, right? Which in a kind of, it, which is, to me seems like an almost b biblical sort of sin. It seems like exactly the kind of thing that we were being cautioned against doing in the book of Genesis. And I, you, know, you can also understand the consequences of what's happening to us. Um, the, the floods and the fires as a sort of biblical punishment, if you like. Um, we've abused this thing, we've abused this earth, and now we're, now we're receiving these punishments as a, as a result. It can all be conceived of that way, and yet it can, the, the way that I'm explaining this is only known to us because of a few decades of, of science, and we can, we can recalibrate or recast our attitude to the earth by way of technological innovation. We actually have the technology, um, we, the solar, the wind, and the fusion, we're getting very close with fusion. We have the technology. The problem is not the technology, the problem is us. <laughs> the problem is us. And so I, I agree with you that, um, that, that, that care for the earth is, is, is a way to unite past and future. Um, and I think there's a very specific historical and technological story that one can tell. Um, and I'm, it's, it's one of the stories I'm trying to tell in the book that I'm writing now. What uh, what fascinates me in, in you in your thinking is that you are a historian who is who has become a philosopher and maybe a metaphysician, and that's many things in your new book that uh, I think are coming in, in in this direction. But let me first ask before we ask a, a few questions, maybe about your new book, ask a question about history. Mm -hmm. uh, you wrote fantastic books that everybody knows about this part of the world, about Eastern Europe. You wrote Bloodlands, you wrote Black Earth. 
But these were the histories of crimes. And this was the histories of, of, uh, of, uh, of suffering. If you look at this part of the world, at Eastern Europe, as, uh, as also a battle for anti-tyrannical values, a centuries-long battle, can we describe the Ukrainian history, for example, maybe Polish history in this way? Can we find, uh, can we look through these histories not only as histories of suffering, but also as histories of big struggle against the tyranny, which, for example, is exemplified in the empires which existed here? Well, uh, y yes. Uh, and in a way, if we're going to refer to my books, Bloodlands at one level is all about that because the method in Bloodlands was to take a certain territory, which is today's Ukraine, Belarus, uh, the Baltics, and Poland, and to say this is actually the center of the history of the world in the 20th century. And I'm making this argument because of the magnitude of killing, that simply more people are killed here as a result of direct political action than, than anywhere else, at least up to this time, in a very short period, 1933 to 1945. But how did I arrive at that method? Because there, there are many ways to, to judge what's terrible. And up to that time, interestingly, just counting the number of people hadn't been one of the methods. And when you discount, that drives you towards this region that we're talking about. But why was I just counting? Well, I was just counting because I had this idea of, not of statistics, but of individuality. I was counting because it matters whether it's 10 million or 4 million because those are, you know, those are individual lives. And I got to that method, I think, looking back at it, in part thanks to precisely the post-ideological dissidents of the 1970s in Eastern Europe, um, who in different ways, whether it was um, Kord in Poland or whether it was the Helsinki group in Ukraine or whether it was Charter 77 in Czechoslovakia or whether it was um, the, you know, the, the people documenting human rights abuses in Russia, they all had come to a very similar idea, which is that something like we don't, you know, we, we, we're, we're fascism is obviously out. Marxism has discredited itself. We don't, but we don't know what the future is going to be. Um, and we have to start a conversation about values on the basis of individual experiences, which leads us back to the conversation we were having before. It had, it, it always, it, there was, the nation came into it, but the nation came into it now in a different way, right? So when, when Havel, Havel talks about the nation, but he's talking about the nation in terms of things that Czechs do, like they like to go outside, or they like to drink beer, or the thing that puts Havel in prison, some of them like rock and roll music, right? And, um, and so that idea of the individual and documenting the individual, because all of these projects were about taking the individual as the starting point and then making sure there was some kind of documentation of what happened to that individual. 
that's what they all in one way or another were doing that and I think that then that's I was starting in some way from that when I wrote the book right so I mean the bloodlands wouldn't have come about I don't think if it hadn't been for that particular East European tradition I mean there are other there are other liberatory traditions in Eastern Europe as well but personally I find myself thinking that the 1970s and early 1980s are a very important wellspring of values and that something you know something very bad happened in the late 80s and early 90s when even those people themselves thought oh these things weren't really very interesting you know when everyone was overwhelmed by the west and you know things quote unquote transition and quote unquote the end of history and so on but for for me that period and those thinkers they were very important for me in the 1980s and they're very important for me now for me as well and i'm i'm, I'm proud to uh, to be talking to these people still like in ukrainian context mm-hmm. you mentioned miroslav marinovich for example or some other other people and uh, this brings me to a very important thing which i think we should be also thinking and stressing that it is a kind of a bad tradition to look at the ukrainian national struggle through the prism of the nationalism of the 30s and the 40s even in ukraine uh, whereas uh, the key thing happened in the 70s and the in, in the 80s and i think the memoirs of the ukrainian dissidents marinovich or rudenko or sverstyuk or many others are so much important i i i really happy that marinovich memoirs are already in english but there are so many other things yeah. to to be translated and uh, the ukrainian identity before 30s was also not a right wing because if we take all the key ukrainian intellectuals of the late 19th century early 20th century they were leftists most probably socialists progressives whatever so this also comes to another question how we defined uh, from the ideological point of view or theoretical point of view the ukrainian uh, struggle for, for for freedom it's 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 something well beyond far beyond what we understand by the concept of nationalism mm-hmm. oh yeah yeah I mean I this isn't this is an obvious remark to make to a Ukrainian in Ukraine but it's of course very striking given the immense pressure that's been placed on Ukraine not just now but in since 2014 given the immense pressure that's placed on Ukraine it's striking how little of the kind of idiotic extreme right nationalism there is there's much more in America and it's not clear why like how how do we excuse ourselves for that there's much more in germany for that matter um or in poland whereas in ukraine which is a country at war and which hasn't been a country at war actually since 2014 there's much less of it i mean they're all the people talk about the nation a lot more and people talk about the nation without shame and that's different um and so a, a westerner who comes here might think well everyone's talking about the nation therefore there must be lots of far right nationalism but it's actually not not the case and that's and that's interesting and i just say it because it con- it's con- it confirms your general thesis that in ukrainian history although there's a there there's a there's a very strong liberatory history it doesn't have all that much to do with the far right um the far right was promoted in a certain way as a result of um 
Polish policy. If it weren't for Polish policy in the 20s and 30s, there wouldn't have been the radicalization that led to Oun in the first place. It was promoted by the horror of the Second World War, which, which selected for certain kinds of conspiratorial and radical politics. It was converted, it was promoted, so to speak, by the expansion of the Soviet Union into Volynia and Galicia, where an, a, a, an underground response could seem coherent. But you're right, for the most part, the people thinking about Ukraine have been thinking about the people as a whole as, as, as the subject of politics, as opposed to thinking about how one might organize some sort of you know, <laughs> fascist hierarchical structure. And uh, it's a mistake that Ukrainians sometimes make and big people make on the outside as well. I can only affirm your point that it's the 70s and the 80s that really matter, in part because it was in the 70s and the 80s that the, the nationalists themselves, often in the gulag, some of them, right, still, were having the conversations with the dissidents. And the dissidents themselves, I'm, making, I'm simplifying this a lot, but the dissidents themselves were thinking through what the nationalists had done and acknowledging its historical um, place, but thinking that they were doing something different, right? And that, that the 70s and 80s are what immediately precedes Ukrainian independence. There's also another trajectory which I think is very important and which is the, the, the explicit argument, the international argument about what Ukraine is, which takes place beyond the borders of Ukraine and where the winner is essentially, um, where, where the winner is Ivan Drunitsky. There's a, in, you know, in, in North America, there is, a, there is an argument about whether Ukraine is going to be ethnic and that when you're in diaspora, that is a very easy way to go. Most diaspora nations go that way because, you, you, because first of all, no one criticizes you for it. If you're in diaspora in North America and you choose ethnicity, it's just like, oh, that's one more thing that you do. You know, you, 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 also, you also collect stamps. You know, it's just one more like private activity that you choose ethnicity. And you don't have your old neighbors around who can tell you that your story doesn't make any sense. So in, in, in America, you can have Polish ethnic nationalism and Ukrainian ethnic nationalism, and they can just kind of live in different neighborhoods and they don't have to deal with each other very much. So ethnicity is an easy answer in diaspora, but it's really striking that in diaspora in North America, before 1991, on a kind of parallel track to what was happening among the dissidents in Ukraine, the argument that Ukraine was a political nation won, had clearly won by the 1990s. Um, and not just some, some kind of empty notion of political nation, but political nation which has history, political nation which is full of thinkers, political nation which is full of variety, political nation which is aware of Jewish history and Polish history. All of, all of those debates had been had already by the 1990s. And in the major Ukrainian institutions in North America, the, the into which I was then, you know, educated later on, this was this had already fundamentally been decided. Uh, maybe last question or last couple of questions. Let us talk a little bit about about your new book. And uh, there are so many topics uh, that that you discussed that it it would be naive to cover all of them. But 
One of the things, and it will like continue our conversation, one of the things which interested me is how you try to warn the Western societies of not making a mistake that Eastern European societies were making. And for example, uh, one of the examples is how you show that it is wrong to focus on one value. And the chapter that I adored is the chapter about Brezhnev, in which we show that Brezhnev was a period, you call it notalitarians, when uh, the society focused on one value, suddenly stopped to believe even in this one value, like social justice or equality, and just became a society of uh, cynics, of people who do not believe in anything. And you argue that this is the same which is going on right now in some, some parts of the West. So you are saying that it is wrong to base the society on one single value. Why? Well, first of all, um, I, I appreciate your reading the manuscript. And uh, it, it, in a way, this goes back to your previous question about Ukraine and liberatory traditions. Uh, the, the, one of the reasons, and there are many reasons I'm here, but one of them is that I, I, I want to be writing this book about freedom taking into account the things that matter in the world while I'm writing it. And that, that includes, of course, this war and the way that people I know and value are reacting to this, to this war. Um, it was for the, the same reason that I took, I took the manuscript into prison <laughs> in the U.S. and taught it in prison because I want to make sure that, I, that, it's a, that it's a philosophical book that has some contact with what's actually happening in, in the world. But my, my, my larger point was this, I, owe a lot to, I owe a lot to Ukraine in this book. And the, the, the moment that we're talking about in the last question, the 1970s, from the point of view of the dissidents is a point of view of thinking their way through to things. But from the point of view of Soviet history, it's the, you know, the word that I even remember is the word stagnation. And what I'm trying to get at is an argument against a, the, a single value which is not just the totalitarian argument. So the totalitarian argument, we all know that if you, if you take one value, I mean, you've made it and I've made it and people have made it in different ways, but I'll just make it a very simple way. If you take one value as the only value, it crowds out all the other values and eventually becomes its own opposite. It's a very simple way of putting it. But there's another problem, which is that historically speaking, you can have that and then you can have something else. And that something else is people stop believing in that one value, right? So um, um, what's his name? Shevelov, the Ukrainian philologist, in his essay, The Fourth Kharkiv, he describes this as sort of a biographical process where what happens is that what happens when you cease to believe in something very intensely is that you're only left with one certainty, and that's the certainty of your own biological needs and your own pleasures. That's all that's left. I'm trying to describe something like that as, as politics, that after one value goes away, all that's, there's just no value left. And that's, so hence my discussion of the Brezhnev period, which I'm glad you appreciate. In this book, Leonid Brezhnev is actually a kind of key political thinker <laughs> because I'm suggesting that Brezhnev was a pioneer in adapting to, the, adapting to a situation where one value had become no values. And that that situation is one, as you say in the question, 
that we in the West also have to deal with. So if we say that our one value is, let's call it you know, entrepreneurship, okay, that's fine. But if we say one value is entrepreneurship, maybe that will lead to some kind of incredibly repressive situations, which it can. Um, it can lead to a situation where you're governed by, you know, a few digital monopolies, which is a dystopia, which, you know, 30 years ago would have been science fiction, but it's kind of true now. Um, it can lead to a situation where people make money by running private prisons, which seems sort of absurd, but it's also part of American reality. But it can also lead to this situation where when people stop believing in the one value, they don't have anything left. And for many Americans now, the idea of entrepreneurship just doesn't make any sense because they, they don't see, you know, they, they're going to live shorter lives than their parents. They're going to make less money than their parents. Um, so seizing on to that value of hard, of hard work and ingenuity, in which I believe, by the way, but the problem is that if that's the only thing that you're being offered, you're going to let it go. And then when you let it go, then you're in a world of nihilism. You know, you're in a world where um, it seems intelligent to you to deny that anything is a value or that anything is, is true. So I'm trying, so now, we, you know, you started nicely from historical examples, but now I'm trying to make a philosophical argument, a, ge a general philosophical argument against the single value. And the, so the argument against a single value is that it can, it can be, pervert itself, but it can also lead to nihilism. Or it can do first one thing and the other thing, which I think is the history of the Soviet Union and contemporary Russia. And then if we start to make the positive case, then the positive case would be something like you always have to have more than one value. In fact, you should have many values and moral life should be about making making intelligent choices among those values and that in making the choices among the values you're you're building up the kind of person that you want to be and this of course goes back to the earlier questions about ukraine and and identity right because what i what i would argue is that your identity is not something that's fixed or even determined by one major decision but your identity is constantly being generated by choices that you're making about values and that so this old problem between you know am i am i the result of my choices or am i um am i what i always was which you think about in terms of you know this basic conflict between essentialism and existentialism that, that the, the way to try to resolve that is to say i'm i'm a result of my choices but my cho not any old choices i'm a result of my choices about when I'm going to be loyal, when I'm going to, when I'm going to be honest, when I'm going to, when I'm going to be authentic, and when I'm going to make a compromise, and that those build up who I am, um, and that that's what freedom is. Timothy Snyder, thanks so much for joining this podcast. Thanks for having me. This was the first episode of Thinking in Dark Times, a new podcast series by Ukraine World. In the first episode, I spoke to world-famous historian Timothy Snyder about Ukraine, Eastern Europe, dissidents, climate change, freedom and the plurality of values. Thinking in dark times is trying to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our common reflection about the world's present, past and future. We try to see light through and despite the current darkness.
My name is Vladimir Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of ukraineworld.org. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote the majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders on the front line and to people affected by this war. Thank you for listening. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.